You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church. How are you? Perfect. My name is Jamin. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Citizens Church. If you are visiting with us either in the room or maybe you're visiting with us uh, online on our website, we're so thrilled uh, to have you here. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. We'll be in the verses that uh, Jill just read for us and uh, more on that in just a bit. Uh, I wanted to remind you what we announced uh, last week and just announce again that we are working towards kind of our next step of reopening uh, for in-person gatherings. And so right now, obviously, we have one in-person service at 11 o'clock on September 13th, as at least as of right now, you know this, anything could change, but uh, September 13th, we hope to add back our 9 a.m. service for all you diehard 9 a.m.ers, and this has been hard, uh, and then also at that 9 a.m. service, want to open back up uh, at a limited capacity, open back up our uh, kids' ministry, both preschool and elementary, which will be wonderful. Uh, and so here's what you need to know about those claps. As of right now, uh, we don't have enough volunteers to open up kids' ministry. And so if you are uh, able, willing to volunteer in that ministry, even if you can only volunteer maybe one Sunday out of the month, uh, we do need, obviously with just the, uh, you know, the impact that everything going on in the world has had right now, it's impacted a lot of our volunteers who just can't serve even though normally they would serve. And so if you're able to do that, uh, if you're maybe on the fence and you're not sure whether or not you should or can, uh, I think Adam Hawkins is offering $100 an hour. I'm not sure about that. You can, you can ask him, but I, I think that's what he should do. Um, so if you're interested, you can email Melissa, melissa at citizenschurch.com. Okay, we are this morning, Colossians 4, 2 through 6, we are in the last section of the book of Colossians. And so this is a short section about what it looks like for Christians to live uh, in the world and to live wisely in the world. Uh, we had just finished a section on what it looks like to live and follow Jesus in the home. Last week, we talked about Jesus being Lord of our lives, a surrendered life where Jesus is Lord over all of our days and all of our desires. And then this morning, we'll, uh, we'll look at mainly verses 5 and 6. Next week, we will look at a really long farewell in the book of Colossians, which is the rest of the book, which means next week will be our very last Sunday in the book of Colossians, and we will complete what has been almost a year uh, in this book. This morning, yes, it's exciting. I, well, I actually don't know what those claps mean. It's like, are you ready to be... All right, so this morning, what we're doing is we are looking specifically at verses 5 and 6. And I just want to say this out loud so it can kind of hover over everywhere that we're going this morning. We're going to talk about wisdom, talk about what it means to be wise in the world, what it means as Christians to be wise. Look at verse five with me. Look at five and six of chapter four. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The most interesting place I've ever been is Jerusalem. And I've been there three times now. I don't know of a place in the world that has as much history. Uh, I don't know of a place in the world that has that much 
uh, religious story and significance packed into one city. And really, if you've ever been, you know this, it's packed not just into the city of Jerusalem, but it's packed into uh, an area called the Old City, which is a small portion of the city about the size of a large neighborhood. And so much historical, uh, so many things that are religiously significant have happened there. And so what happens is, is people from all around the world travel there to fill the streets. It's a lot of people in a really small space. And so here's the experience in Jerusalem as you walk down the streets of the Old City it's loud. There are tons of noises all around you. There's uh, tour guides everywhere, and they are leading groups who've come from all over the world, and they're trying to communicate their information to their group, and many of them have a microphone, and so it's this constant streaming of information, and, and many of these tour guides are trying to speak over the other tour guides so that their group can hear what they have to say, and you just have that noise constant. Uh, You've got uh, tons of people who live there who are trying to make a living there and so they own shops there and they're speaking, they're they're standing at the door of their shop or they're standing next to their cart and they're trying to sell what they have to sell, right? And so it's food, it's souvenirs. You can get, it's, it's very eclectic. In Jerusalem, you can get anything from really ancient artifacts to you can buy a Dallas Cowboys t-shirt that has Dallas Cowboys written in Hebrew on it, which is fitting, right? It's like God's team in the Holy Land. Anyway, uh, and then you've got uh, religious ethnic tension in that city. I don't know of another city that has that kind of diversity and that kind of tension surrounding that kind of diversity that dates back thousands of years. And so it's not uncommon to have people of two different religious groups, right? You've got Orthodox Jews praying in the street. You've got the Muslim call to worship that rings throughout the day. It's not uncommon to have people of two different ethnic groups, two different religious groups that are shouting at each other in the street. Uh, There are no sidewalks in Jerusalem. And so the cars drive down the same streets that all the tourists walk on. And you can tell the cars have grown more and more impatient with tourists. And so there's this constant blaring of horns. And and so to be there on the street uh, is to be right in the middle of a chaotic blend of noise. That's the best way to describe it. It's just this chaotic blend of all these different noises. First time I was there, it was especially packed. The streets were especially loud. And I'm hearing that chaotic blend of noise all around me. And then all of a sudden I hear the sound of singing, beautiful singing. And as we kept walking through the streets of Jerusalem, the singing grew louder and louder until I got to the door of a church. It was this beautiful a hundred-year-old church that's right in the middle of Jerusalem, right by the pool of Bethesda where Jesus healed the man who couldn't walk. And uh, what is special about this church, it's the size of a small chapel. It's got this beautiful architecture, and it has this domed roof at the top, and it's like all of the room kind of spirals up to that, to that roof, and so the acoustics in this room are remarkable. You can The voice in that room carries... And so what Christians do, what many groups do, is they stand right in the middle of the room and they'll just sing worship songs or they'll sing hymns. And so I I walked up that day and on that particular day, there's a group of Christians standing in the middle of the room singing, How Great Thou Art. And it was beautiful. I, I just can't describe how the room impacts the way that the sound carries, the way that the voice carries. Everyone who sings there sounds incredible. It doesn't matter whether you can sing or not. When you sing in that room, everyone sounds great. And so I remember standing at that door and just being so moved by this group of Christians singing, How Great Thou Art. And I was moved because of the words, and I was moved because of the beauty, but mostly I was moved because of the experience of leaving the chaos 
that outside is this chaotic blend of noise and then to come to the door of the church, to come to the door of the chapel and to hear this beautiful chorus of voices. And what was happening is that beautiful chorus of voices in harmony and that beautiful chorus of voices in unity is pouring out into the street, disrupting the chaos. To stand at the doors, to know the chaos of all the noises all around you, and yet to be drawn to this beautiful voice that had become a beautiful disruption to the chaos outside. Church, that is what a Christian is to be in the world. A Christian, those who follow Jesus, are to sound and are to live in a way that their voice and their life is a beautiful disruption in a chaotic world. That there is something that pours out of the life of the Christian that is distinct, and it pours out of our church into the street as a chorus that interrupts the chaos. And look, guys, I don't know of a more important conversation for the church in 2020 than this one. Uh, What does it look like to be a beautiful, disruptive voice in a world that is increasingly divided, in a world that is increasingly polarized, in a world that is increasingly chaotic? How do we accomplish that? I don't think there's a more important conversation for us to have. Last December, I was with some friends, and we were reflecting on 2019. So it's the end of the year. We're looking back on 2019, and we're just reflecting on, on the year and looking back on it. And for all of us, just because of the group that I was with, we're all reflecting back on what was a really hard year. It was a really difficult year. I went around the circle and shared about that difficulty, and so maybe the collective feeling about 2019 was, man, 2019 just kind of beat us up a little bit. Um, And God was kind, and he was faithful, and there was much that went really well, but it was hard. And if I I had the choice, I don't want to relive it. So that was the, the kind of the atmosphere of the room. And I looked at everyone at the end of the night, and I said this, 2020 is going to be awesome. (laughs) What could go wrong, right? Like, I'm sitting there trying to prepare us to welcome 2020 with open arms, right? So all all that to say, all of this is my fault. I take full responsibility. And, And maybe it's a little bit funny, but to look back at like a December 2019, it actually is sobering to think of all that has happened since then, right? Think with me about what's going on in our world right now, right? At least our part of the world. Think about the pandemic and think about how life has changed. And so much about life has changed. The way that we do church has changed. How we do school has changed. For many, financial situations have changed. And life right now is just fraught, is it not? Life right now is fraught with anxiety and it's fraught with division and it's fraught with uncertainty and it's fraught with anger. And it seems, I hope you can agree with me on this, it seems that everything is hyper-politicized right now. And so it's hard to know what is true versus what is political maneuvering. And, and there's an important election coming up this year and that's breeding even more anger and breeding even more confusion. And so hear me, friends, to be a Christian in 2020 in our part of the world is to walk crowded streets that are filled with noise. It's to walk crowded streets, which is this blend of chaotic noise. And there's a constant stream of information. And there's a ton of people trying to sell something. And there's lots of voices shouting at one another. And we're walking among streets where there's that chaotic blend of sound. And we, as Christians, are called to be the voice that pours out of the church into the streets as a beautiful disruption to that chaos. 
the chorus of voices that go out in harmony and that go out in beauty to disrupt the chaos of voices that speak a better word, that speak a better word that only we as Christians, Christians can speak. What does that look like? This passage tells us that that beautiful disruptive voice is the voice of wisdom. It says in verse five, walk in wisdom. And everything that comes after that in verse five and in verse six is going to be expounding on what wisdom looks like. The voice that is a disruption is the wise voice. What we should be asking right now as Christians is what does it look like to be wise? What do I need in order to grow in wisdom? Because the voice that disrupts the chaos is the wise voice. The wise voice pours out from the church as a beautiful disruption. So wisdom is something that I've prayed for a lot lately. Wisdom is something I've felt really desperate for a lot lately. My uh, mentor is writing a book on wisdom, thank God, and we've talked about it a lot. And, and so my, many of my thoughts this morning have been shaped by him and by our conversations, and I've just felt a, a desperation for wisdom. And, and I, I've heard from many in our church and just from many in my life that wisdom is something that uh, we've been asking for a lot. And so I just wonder if you consider this right now, ha have you felt in these past five or six months, have you felt your own need for wisdom? Have you felt confronted maybe in some ways with your own lack of wisdom? And maybe it's come out in your heart or in your mouth or in your mind as, God, I don't know the way forward. God, things seem so confusing. God, I'm just not sure how to think about things and I need your wisdom. And so wisdom, we often think about it in terms of uh, we need wisdom when we're making decisions. Wisdom is more than that. Uh, wisdom is thinking God's thoughts in every circumstance. Wisdom is operating in a way so that the character of God, the wisdom of God is visible in your life at all times, right? Wisdom is learning to live in God's world, in God's way, and we're commanded as Christians to both pursue wisdom and to walk in wisdom, and it is the voice that a chaotic world needs. And so here's what I want to do. I want to offer four things that are true about the wise, four things that are true about wise people, four things that are true about Christians who are walking in wisdom that I think are especially relevant in our polarized and uncertain times. We're gonna start by considering some Proverbs together and then we'll work our way back to Colossians 5 and 6. Here are the four things that are true about the wise. The wise are humble. The wise are slow to anger. The wise use their words to heal, not to hurt. And the wise remember the story that they're a part of. The wise are humble. The wise are slow to anger. The wise use their words to heal, not to hurt and the wise remember the story that they're part of. Consider this collection of Proverbs with me. The wise are humble, they seek counsel, they welcome correction, and they honor complexity. Listen to these Proverbs, they're on the screen behind me. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 15, 12, a scoffer does not like to be reproved, he will not go to the wise. 18, 17, we're gonna spend some time on this one. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. The wise are humble, means the wise seek counsel, the wise welcome correction, and the wise honor complexity in life, and it makes them humble. Uh, there's two people described in these verses, the wise and the fool. If, if you notice about these verses, the fool does not like to be corrected. 
The fool does not seek counsel. Uh, The fool does not seek understanding. The fool is always right in his own eyes, which means he believes and thinks the way he believes and thinks by listening to himself. The foolish person believes they have all of the resources in their own heart and in their own mind to live their life, and they don't need anyone else. The wise, they seek counsel, and they welcome correction. They are eager to hear advice. There's another proverb that says this. I love it. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And what it means is it means the wise have friends in their life who can be honest with them about their life, even if that honesty hurts them, and the wise welcome that kind of correction in their life. And then this one, we will spend a tremendous amount of time here. I think it's so important for us, church. Wise people honor complexity in life. 1817 is a new proverb for me. It's quickly become one of the most important proverbs for me. It says, one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. There are things in life that are clear right and wrong. We as Christians believe in objective morality. Proverbs teaches objective morality. There are objective moral truths all throughout Proverbs. Don't murder, don't be lazy, don't cheat on your spouse. But other times in life, even for those who believe in objective morality, other times in life, things are not as clear Someone states a case as something and it seems right and then a competing voice comes along and it's less clear. God has offered that to us as part of life. Complexity is part of life. The first person who states their case, they seem right. As soon as you have a competing voice, what introduces into that scenario is a complexity, is confusion. Things aren't quite as as clear. And so what the wise do We live in this right now. We live in an incredibly complex time. Think COVID and how to respond. Think the election that's coming up, right? Lots of different opinions. Lots of people carrying those opinions very strongly. And most of those, if not all of those scenarios are incredibly complex. And what the wise do is they honor complexity. And here's how they honor complexity. They take any subject that's controversial, any subject that's complex, and the wise wants to hear the competing voice. The wise listens to competing voices. They listen to both sides of an argument because they gain understanding. Fools belittle complexity. A fool will take a situation that is uh, confusing and they will draw a quick conclusion about it with only the information that they wanted. And they judge anyone that doesn't conclude what they conclude. And a fool has no patience for people who want to process what they themselves didn't take the time to consider. The voice and that voice from a Christian right now is not a beautiful voice. It sounds like everyone else. It sounds like everyone else screaming so authoritatively about things that are actually really confusing and complex. The wise honors complexity and then, it doesn't mean they never land on a conclusion, but the wise honoring complexity means they hold their conclusions with humility. And here's why. Please pay attention, friends. Here's why. What the wise understand about complex situations is that in complex situations, it often feels like righteous desires are in competition with one another. And what do you do in those situations? Meaning, it's not, there's nothing complex about when there's something that's clearly wrong and then something over here that's clearly right. That, That might be difficult, but it's still easy to understand. What is complex is when there are situations in life where there are two righteous desires and they feel like they're in competition with one another. Let me give you an example. It's very personal to us as a church. I felt that complexity when we're trying to decide about reopening our church for in-person services. 
So Abbott's orders come out, May, June, lots of other churches are reopening. We're trying to make a decision as Citizens Church, as elders and as staff, what do we do? And I felt the tension of competing righteous desires. Um, it was a challenge for me. I knew that there was a mix of opinions, and I am um, I'm a harmonizer. Do you know that personality type? Uh, a harmonizer means my world feels right when everyone I love and serve are getting along. So 2020 has been great for me on that front. Um, what made it complex, though, is that what felt like righteous desires that were in competition with one another. Here, here's what I mean. Um, there was a righteous desire to gather as a church, to gather in person as the people of God. I, I have a growing concern of what this means for the church in this day and age to be so disconnected from one another. I have a growing concern of what it means for us to miss in-person worship services for months and months at a time. I still have that concern. I'm grateful for our digital presence. Those of you watching online, fighting all the distractions, I'm grateful that you are, and yet it's not ideal. If possible, the people of God need to be together, embodied together, worshiping together. That's a righteous desire. Also, there was a righteous desire over here to want to protect people. Um, and I know for most that the virus is not deadly, but what matters to me as a pastor are not just the statistics out there. What matters to me as a pastor are the stories in here. Knowing that there are many stories of people uh, who are high risk, who are immunocompromised, knowing that there are people in our church who have those higher risks and knowing their names and knowing their faces. And, and I know them and I love them. We have staff members who have family members who are incredibly high risk, myself included. And, and so they would be in trouble if they got COVID. So there's a desire to protect the vulnerable. So think with me, which desire is righteous? The desire to gather together for in-person worship, the desire to protect the vulnerable. Well, they both are but they feel in competition with one another, right? They feel like they are two good desires that are competing. And, and then you mix into those two desires important questions on each side. Like on one side, isn't the church more than a building? Uh, can't we just meet in homes and God can meet us in our homes? Uh, why rush back to meeting? Isn't that risky? Well, yes, of course God can meet you in your living room. And of course the church is more than us together on a Sunday morning, but it certainly is not less than us together on a Sunday morning. And if possible, it's good and right for us to gather together. And then also, avoiding risk is not the highest good in the Christian life. On the other side, questions like, well, what about courage? Uh, shouldn't Christians uh, not live in fear? We're all going to die someday. Why not gather back together like we used to? Why not gather together with really low restrictions and be courageous and have faith? Okay, praise God. But hear me. Um, <laughs> The Bible calls me to be courageous with my own life. It never gives me permission to be courageous with someone else's. In fact, it calls me to consider the needs of others, especially to consider the needs of the weaker among us and for the strong to use their power to defend and protect the weak. So two competing righteous desires, lots of unknowns still, Lots that we don't, we've been, we've been fighting a virus for almost a year that a year ago most of us had never heard of. And in that complexity, what do you do? Well, we're slow and we were prayerful and then decided out of a desire to both gather together and a desire to protect the vulnerable to open back up with lots of restrictions. 
and while other churches maybe stayed closed, and while some other churches opened with, with very few restrictions or optional restrictions, restrictions, we fell right in the middle and opened back up with a lot of restrictions, which means no one's happy. And so here's what I want you to hear. Navigating that tension opened our church back up in love and in wisdom and in conviction. And other churches, hear me, friends, other churches walked through the exact same process and landed in a different place with the same righteous desires, considering the same questions, trying to tease in their minds the same arguments and then landed in a different place. Some stayed closed, some opened differently. Who's right? That's the wrong question in complexity. In complexity, the question is, did you walk in wisdom? Did you walk in conviction? Because when you start asking questions about who's right, when there are competing righteous desires, what you do is you force an imbalanced morality and you start to elevate some righteous desires over other righteous desires. And that's self-righteous. And I went through all of that because that's such a common experience right now. You, friend, living in a complex COVID world, you've experienced something like that. You've experienced the tension of having good desires in your heart that maybe feel in competition with one another, righteous desires that feel like they are maybe competing with each other. You've had to continue to navigate right now a complex COVID world. And whether that's what you decided about school for your kids or what you're still trying to decide about school for your kids and what you're trying to decide about your workplace, right? And, and that has meant, hopefully, asking similar questions. And what that's meant is hopefully trying to navigate similar tensions and, and here's what the wise do in complexity. They consider all there is to consider. They are slow with conclusions and then even slower to judge those who in complexity landed on a different conclusion than they did. The wise are humble. The wise are humble. And especially in seasons of complexity, the wise try to lean into that humility. I'll give you an exa another example. In an election year, we'll just... Dive right in. <laughs> As a Christian, here's what we can't disagree on. We cannot disagree that we want a society that honors the image of God. We want a society that honors the image of God from the moment of conception. A society that honors the image of God till image bearers take their very last breath from womb to tomb. We believe God appoints leaders, according to Romans 13, to administer justice. Societies where there is oppression... Societies where there is inequality, those societies are a stench in the face of God. And a Christian has a responsibility to use our voice to reflect God's values, and that informs how we vote. Can't disagree on all that. Those are righteous desires, okay? What does it look like for a Christian to navigate that? Especially right now, when there are things about each candidate that should trouble Christians, what does it look like? Do you, do you vote for the party that you most align with? Do you vote for the one that you entrust to enact the policies that help the most people? Do you vote third party? Do you write in Michael Bleeker for president, which is probably what I'm going to do, right? I think he'll just sing the country's problems away. Uh, it's complex. It's complex. And maybe this one isn't as complex for you. I know, I, I know that that's true for some. Maybe it's clear. Maybe you even take offense that I would say that there are things about each candidate that should trouble Christians, and I understand. But wisdom, friend, wisdom means working to understand 
that there are Christians who love the God that you love, have been forgiven from their sin just like you, and they may land in a different place and land there not because they sold their soul, that's a foolish statement, but because they followed righteous desires, the same righteous desires that you followed, and in a complex political world, shared righteous desires can lead to different conclusions. And above all of that, friends, where we remain united as Christians is we remain united because we believe the hope of the world is who is at the right hand of God, not who's in the Oval Office. Let's try again, church. Our hope in the world is who is at the right hand of God, not who is in the Oval Office. Amen. (laughs) Wisdom would say, be slow with conclusions, even slower when judging those who don't arrive at conclusions you do. And what that means is a wise church, you know what, what the mark of a wise church is going to be? The mark of a wise church is going to be people who agree on essentials, disagree on non-essentials, and live in unity and fellowship and love. That's the mark of a wise church. Uh, and I need to tell you something, Citizens Church, because I don't want anyone to get the wrong impression from the last 20 minutes. You are a wise people. This church is a wise church especially those of you who have been with us for some time, from my seat, watching you, listening to you, you are wise. You don't agree on a whole lot, uh, but you love Jesus and you love one another. And I need you to know I take great pride. I take great pride in being a part of a church like ours who disagrees on some things, but love one another because we agree on what matters most. That is a beautiful disruption in a world that divides at the earliest disagreement, not us. Praise God. I think he will reward us for that. The wise are humble. Number two, we'll move faster through these last three. The wise are slow to anger. Consider this collection of Proverbs with me. Proverbs 12, 16. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 29, 9. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs. There is no quiet. The wise are slow to anger. Let me say it a different way. The wise are emotionally healthy. Their spiritual health is is evidenced by their emotional health. The fool is quick-tempered. The fool is easily offended. Uh, Proverbs 12, 16 is incredibly important. The vexation of a fool is known at once. Vexation is annoyed, the annoyance of a fool, the irritability of the fool when a fool is offended. Um, and, And so the fool is easily irritated. And you notice in this proverb, it doesn't say what they're annoyed by. It says what the wise does, but it doesn't say what the fool is annoyed by because the fool can be annoyed at anything. They can be irritated by everything. And and what makes them a fool is not that they're annoyed. We're all annoyed. We've all been irritated, right? What makes them a fool is that they cannot keep their irritation to themselves. They have to speak it. They have to make their offense known. They have to make their uh, annoyance known. It says the vexation of a fool is known at once. And so they wear their annoyance on their sleeve. They are eager to let others know what annoys them, who annoys them, when they are annoyed, how annoyed they can get. And it's annoying, which makes me a fool because I just told you what annoys me. The fool has a disproportionate emotional response. Would you hear this? Proverbs 29.9, if a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages or laughs. Well, those are two different emotions, right? Rage is over here. Laughter is over here. They are extreme emotions. And that's the point. The foolish person has an 
has a disproportionate emotional response to circumstances, meaning the emotion coming out of them is disproportionate to the circumstance that they're responding to. So it can be rage or it can be laughter. The point is they don't have control over their emotions. And there has been a lot of that lately. There's been a lot of disproportionate emotion, a lot of being more upset than we should about things we can't control, and a lot of being more upset about things that just aren't that clear. A good baseline question for you, Christian, in this climate, a good baseline question for me, does my emotion, in any circumstance, does my emotion reflect the heart of God? If I'm sad, am I sad about things that God is sad about? If I'm angry, am I angry at something that angers God? Beyond that, we need to be really honest with ourselves and our emotion. In other words, am I as upset with sin in my own heart as I am with anything else going on in the world? Is my emotion first directed at the things that I want to change in me before it's directed on the things that I want God to change in the world, right? Because to be upset about what others do and to ignore my own heart is self-righteousness. And then after all of that, know this, the wise are slow to anger. The wise are emotionally healthy. They're balanced in their emotion. It says that they have access to love that can cover offenses because they are the kind of people who have been loved in a way that God has covered their offenses. It says this, the wise can ignore an insult. The wise can ignore an insult. Not only do they not have to talk about everything that annoys them to everyone around them, even when there is something that is worth being angry about, even when they're insulted, even when they've been offended, they can let it go. They don't have to put it on social media. Wise people have emotional endurance that frees them to be offended, even insulted, and to not have to respond. They can ignore it because they're slow to anger. Number three, wise people use their words to heal. Let's consider these collection of Proverbs with me. Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Proverbs 15, 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 12, 18. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the words of the wise bring healing. The wise are humble. The wise are slow to anger. The wise use their words to heal, not to hurt. The fool is reckless with their words. Fools use their words to hurt uh, and to divide. They separate. The image is a wise person's mouth is like a sword that separates things that were never intended to be separated, that cuts through people like a sword through flesh. And they use their words to cut people with gossip and they use their words to cut people through slander and they cut people by shaming them or they cut by unfair comparisons or they cut by name calling and the wise speaks words of healing because the wise understand the weight of words. The wise understand the power of words in the life of other people. And so the wise are those who literally watch their mouths when talking to others because they know they have the power to heal. Think about this. A gentle answer turns away wrath. What, what if, what if Christians in America were known just by that? Christians are those who respond gently. Christians are those who use their words in a way that is so gentle that it turns wrath away. A gentle answer turns away wrath, and it sounds like this. I'm sorry you were hurt. It sounds like this. Look, I know you're going through a lot. I'm going to be praying for you. It sounds like this. I know that we disagree, but I want you to know I love you and nothing's going to change that. A gentle answer turns away wrath. It says this, anxiety weighs down the heart. Anyone feeling anxious? What does a kind word do to an anxious heart? It cheers it up. Look, you've got anxious people all around you. You probably are one in this circumstance. 
you know a mom and dad who's trying to homeschool for the first time and managing virtual school for the first time, you know what's likely happening in their heart? It's probably heavy. It's probably anxious. Uh, you know a teacher that's trying to navigate being a teacher in this mess? You know someone who lives alone and what they thought would be a few weeks of being by themselves has become half a year of compounded loneliness? You know someone who's sick. You know someone who lost their job. All around us, people whose hearts are weighed down with anxiety. And you, Christian, you have the power to lift anxiety with a kind word. You have the power in your words to speak with your voice and to be a beautiful disruption into the anxiety in other people's lives. We have words that heal. We're back to Colossians 4 now. In verse 6, it says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with thought. When he says gracious, it means your speech is always ready to offer the grace of the gospel. Your speech is always ready to remind people about Jesus. And so we as Christians have the best words to speak at all times. In a world that's complex, in a world that's confused, in a world that's overwhelmed, we have the sweetest, the kindest, the most life-giving words to speak, that Jesus sees you, he died for you, he loves you, right? We need more words of grace to the anxious, to even the foolish, words of grace that say in all of the controversy, what the, the loudest thing from our mouth is Jesus came to save sinners. In all of the disagreement, in all of the polarization, the thing that we need to speak most clearly and most frequently is that but God rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, reconciles us, saves us. The wise voice is that beautiful disruption that sees in your words in any given day, and it includes in our posts in any given day, an ability to leverage a moment to bring healing and not hurt. The wise are humble. The wise are slow to anger. The wise use their words to heal, not to hurt. And the wise remember the story we belong to. In Colossians 4, it says, walk in wisdom, making the best use of the time. I think one of the dangers right now of the climate that we live in is that we can so easily forget the story that we belong to. We can so easily let the headlines become the major storyline in our life. We talked last week about how one of the challenges to the church right now is that we're discipled by church for 90 minutes a week, some more, some less, but then discipled by the news networks and social media and all the streaming services the rest of the week. We expounded on that a bit last Sunday if you want more. One of the consequences, I think, of that is that we've lost sight or are at risk of losing sight of the story that we belong to, the story of God creating a world broken through sin and then God sending his son to rescue that lost world who died, who rose again, who reigns at the right hand of the Father and who will one day return. That is the story. And there are subplots all around us. The political climate is a subplot. The coronavirus is a subplot and they matter. They matter. But when we forget the story, we allow the subplots in our lives to, to act like the major storyline in our life. And the wise remember the story that we belong to. Paul says, make the best use of the time. What he says, is, what he means is remember the story. And by time, he doesn't mean days of the week. By time, he doesn't even mean the time that you have before you die. By time, he means the time in between Jesus' resurrection and his return. That's how the New Testament, that's how Christians think of time in between the great Christological events of Jesus' death and resurrection and his return in the future. And we are the people who tell time based on those historical events. We remember the story based on the events that matter most to us. 
My daughter, Adeline, before she understood days and weeks and months and years, she talked about time based on the two big events that matter most to her in her life, her birthday in August and Christmas in December. And so she would say something like, hey, dad, what's today? And I'd say, it's Tuesday. And she'd be like, okay, is it my birthday? That's all she cared about, right? She didn't care about it's Tuesday. She didn't care about what, she just wants to know how close am I to my birthday? That's the big event I care about. Or how close are we to Christmas? She understood her life in relation to the two events that were most important to her. That is how we live in any given day, Christian. That we understand time through the events most important to us. Today is not just Sunday. Today is another day lived in between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. You are not first and foremost someone with a strong opinion about masks living in the middle of a pandemic. You are not first and foremost an overwhelmed mom or dad with forced homeschool living in a time when most school is virtual. You are not first and foremost a Republican or a Democrat living in an election year out of the time when the election is going to have a dramatic impact on our country. All of that matters, but it matters within the story that matters most. You are first and foremost a Christian living in between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. And we look back in faith and we discipline our hearts to remember that story. We look back on his death and resurrection and we quote the Bible that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. He was buried, he rose again. In Acts 2, the apostles preached Jesus was crucified, but God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And that's our story. That's the event that matters most to us. Jesus died. He did not stay dead. He is alive right now. And then we look forward to a day when he will return and he will split the sky. And the Bible says the dead will be raised. We will all be changed. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Praise be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ. Jesus will come again. That is my story, and I live right now in a time between his resurrection and his return, and remembering that story makes me wise. Remembering that story helps me to know that right now I am loved, that right now all my sin has been forgiven, that right now, with everything going on, I have far more to be grateful for than I have to be anxious about. And I can remember, and I can, even in my concern, even in feeling overwhelmed, I can remember what God says about my life because I live in this time. I can remember this, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God. Those who are called according to his purposes, for who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, which means Jesus is, is using all of this to make us look more like him, that God is using everything in our life for good to conform us into the image of his son. And I can remember that regardless of the pain in my life, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing, no famine or disease or persecution or sword. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors. And I know that right now I am named among those who will overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And I belong to the people of God. And so when every other institution crumbles, when all of the parties are no more, all that's left is Jesus and his people. And I belong to a church who right now Jesus is building and he's promised the gates of hell will not prevail. And I say right now as a Christian that he, Jesus, I say now what all will say one day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's what time it is right now. That's our story, church. The wise remember that story. The wise see everything that happens in our day is happening in between two events. 
that in a world where we've lost control of so much, two events that are as sure and as certain as God is true and good and loving and right. The wise are humble. The wise are slow to anger. The wise use their words to heal, not to hurt. And the wise remember the story we belong to. And if we walk out in wisdom, Citizens Church, we have a shot of disrupting the noise. We have a shot of being a beautiful, disruptive chorus that pours out into the street, interrupts the chaos, and speaks a better word. Lord, help us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace and your kindness to us. I need your wisdom, God, to be a beautiful disruption in my own heart. I need it to disrupt the anxiety. I need it to to disrupt the annoyance. God, I have, I have, in considering wisdom this week, I have been exposed as a fool. And I thank you, God, that because of Jesus, the wisest man to ever live, there's grace for fools. There's forgiveness for foolish people who've said foolish things. Lord, would you stir right now in your church and stir right now among your people wisdom to be a beautiful, disruptive voice in a world that is so desperate to hear something distinct, so desperate to hear something of love, so desperate to hear something of hope, so desperate to hear something of people who can disagree and love one another at the same time. Make us wise, Lord. If you granted any prayer in a moment, I ask that you would grant this prayer in a moment that you would make Citizens Church a people who need you and only you and cling to you and that that goes out into our families and that goes out into our workplaces and that goes out into the watching world, into the streets around us as a beautiful invitation that there is a better way to live. There are better gods to worship. There's a better gospel that covers failures, that turns fools into sages. We love you. We need you. I thank you, a prayer I've prayed so often this year. I thank you, God, that Citizens Church is already so much of what I'd hoped we'd be. Thank you for your kindness to us in that. Lord, as we sing and as we celebrate, I pray that this room would erupt with a chorus of voices, God. I pray that this room would erupt as a beautiful disruption of those who stand on your word and who stand in your story and who proclaim about you, Lord Jesus, that you are enough, you are in control, you are worthy of worship because you are. We love you. Amen.